So, uh, welcome everyone this evening, and um, we keep you on your toes, not just by changing the room, but by changing the time. I'm glad that uh, you all have both the location and the time today. So, we're delighted to have Sophia Connell from Birkbeck College. Um, she was, uh, for quite a while, uh, an academic at Cambridge, a prize-winning teacher, and she's now the... Uh, very well known for her work on Aristotle's biology. She's the editor of the, is it still forthcoming? Or is it, it is, yeah. Still forthcoming, uh, Cambridge Companion to Aristotle's Biology, and the author of Aristotle on Female Animals. And today we're going to hear about, uh, well, human animals, I think, and care and parenting in the house <coughs> and ethics. So the talk will... Uh, Last 50 minutes an hour, we'll have a short break and then come back for questions and answers after the break. So, thank you, Sophia. Thank you. So, the morality of raising children in currently in the predominant model in philosophy is a deontological model. Uh, discussions of duties and rights um, and obligations towards children are very are predominate. Um, and this leads to the sort of general cultural idea that children are a bit of a burden. So this was uh, actually on the draft. Um, if you don't know who this is, Duncan Jones, he's this, he used to be called Zowie Bowie. He's the son of David Bowie. So he says, I have two kids. And if you tell someone, so I'll tell you something I never see anyone admit. They're exhausting, frustrating, and life destabilizing. They're rarely fun. Sure, smiles are great, hugs are lovely, but it's hard. And not obviously a good choice in life. So you get this idea that um, the only kind of alternative to this burden and duty of taking care of those younger than ourselves is um, if, there were, if they were pleasant to the parent, if they were kind of fun and, and um, there was some kind of immediate pleasure. What I'm offering today um, is an alternative to this. I'm going all the way back 2,000 so years to Aristotelian ethics and biology, where I think I find something a little bit different to supplement this idea of obligation and duty and burden, to say there is something that's good for the individual in the care of those younger than themselves. Um, so raising and nurturing younger people is incredibly challenging and difficult. Um, so, and what makes it worthwhile is quite difficult to cash out, and especially in sort of modern individualistic terms. So if we go back to Aristotelian ethics, we have a biological basis for parenting, and we have a kind of social basis where we are, we are intelligent animals and we are intertwined with each other. We are inside each other's lives in some way. So it's quite hard to explain you know, what makes it sort of pleasant and nice for us to, to help those younger than ourselves. Um, so I have to set up the whole kind of metaphysics behind it from Aristotelian ethics. So. Um, this uh, idea of it not being a good choice in life is something that Aristotle is going to challenge. Because in fact, making the deliberate choice to incorporate the extensive needs of those younger than ourselves into our life plans is a good choice in life. In fact, if we don't do this, human life won't continue as we know it. So it's something that's really important for humanity in general. Um, and it does enrich an individual's life, or it ought to do, 
in the best circumstances, although the, it might not be, that not, might not be why one aims for it. One might aim to live the best life possible, and incorporating the needs of those younger than ourselves is part of living that best life possible. But this is different from it being selfish. It's something more like self-realizing. So um, that's a sort of introduction to the paper. Um, I've broken it down into four parts. Um, so I'm going to set up the biological basis for nurturing and caring relationships and point out how human beings differ from other uh, intelligent animals who uh, participate in these, um, these nurturing activities that require intelligence. Um, and I'm going to go into more detail about what that sort of uh, relationship is for Aristotle. It's a kind of friendship. Nurture is a kind of friendship where the older and the younger human being are in this friendly relation, and there's various ways to cash this out. But the most important thing to realize is that the older friend loves more than the younger friend. Um, and that's really important because the love is active and it's a kind of virtue. So it's the good of this kind of friendship for the individual who participates in caring and nurturing for another is that she gives more love than she receives. Um, and to to spell this out more clearly, well, you'll see whether it's clear or not to you. This is the Aristotelian metaphysics comes in, where this kind of love is a benefaction, which is also a production. So we'll get into Aristotle's metaphysics. And I'll, I'll conclude with some kind of implications I see for this vision of nurture to supplement our usual deontological <coughs> models and what this can help us to, to realize. So thinking about the biology of uh, nurturing, I'm going to talk about parenting, but the implications for this are beyond just biological parents to the way we interact with people who are younger than ourselves when we're helping and nurturing and um, trying to make them become better people. So, um, but if we just start with the sort of basic biology, humans are not immortal. So no matter whether you have children yourself or not, in order for us to continue to exist as human beings, we'll need to reproduce. Um, a human nurture, just biologically, the facts of human nurture are that it's arduous, takes a very long time, is extremely complicated and difficult. Um, and it's only when human communities sort of have this intergenerational support that they can flourish. So Aristotle talks about the biological basis of nurture and he brings in other, other living beings, other, other animals. Um, so we're all sort of similar because we're all... Um, these kind of beings that can exist immortally, so we have to reproduce ourselves physically from one generation to the next. And he brings in intelligence. So he, look, he, says, he says, it looks as though nature herself desires to provide for, that there shall be such a feeling of attention and care for the young offspring. In the inferior animals, this, um, this feeling which she implants lasts only until the moment of birth. In others, until the offspring reaches its complete development, and in those that have more intelligence, until the upbringing is completed, those that are endowed with the most intelligence show intimacy and affection towards their offspring, even after they've reached their complete development. Human beings and some of the quadrupeds are examples of this. So nature has provided a feeling of care, a feeling of affection. But that's not all. We also get intelligence. So um, interestingly, Aristotle has various times when he talks about animals being practically intelligent, phronimos, um, and the, the, the 
the most frequent um, references he has to this are when animals are nurturing other animals younger than themselves, they're usually their own offspring. Um, so we have here not parenting, and in fact this is interesting because Aristotle has this kind of view of animals that they have a kind of cognition that's not just a sort of passive instinct, they're engaging with the world and trying to figure out how to make the world a better place for their offspring and, and they're dealing with all kinds of contingencies. He describes this and he calls this practical intelligence, the same word he uses of human beings um, in his ethics. Um, and so he doesn't think of parenting as a, as, as a kind of unthinking instinct. It's one of the ways in which animals uh, display their intelligence and use their intelligence. So um, for non-human animals, I've got, I've got just one cute picture of non-human animals, although you'll see that what's going on is not so nice, really. But the, the uh, mother uh, must teach the young how to hunt. You can also have the... You know, the, the, the deer parents teaching the young how to run away. So there has to be, but it's a gradual process of training and teaching, and it requires this kind of very intricate intelligence to, um, to, to bring about the best results for the next generation. And Aristotle also describes this in very great detail in birds, which are particularly um, good at parenting. So, but there are these key differences between human and non-human caring activities. Aristotle has, in his ethics, um, he, he talks about animals having natural virtues. Um, they have feelings, this feeling of care and affection for the young is a natural virtue. And then on top of that, they have this way of figuring out the best way to train their young. But the two are not quite integrated together in uh, non-human <coughs> animals. Um, because that non-human animals use, they only have experience. They do something one time and then they try it again and they see it works and they, and they get on with it. So this more experienced mother will teach its young better than the one that's only just had its first litter of young. Whereas human beings, as Aristotle says in many places, they add to um, experience of techne, technical knowledge, craft knowledge, and episteme, uh, more uh, the ability to come up with reasons and causes and explanations, and this, so they have a kind of theoretical knowledge. And this comes into the way in which they figure out what to do in their everyday lives. So human practical intelligence requires this conscious deliberation and conscious choice, which animals don't share. So this means that, that non-human animals can sometimes be unsuccessful in their attempts to do the best for their young. Because they, uh, because they don't have the control that, that this full knowledge would provide. So Aristotle explains that as the animals not having full virtue. Full virtue requires this integration of the feelings with, with the intelligence, with the practical intelligence of a human being. So human practical intelligence is a few little pointers about it, um, which will be important for uh, considering human parenting. Um, For those of you who know the Nicomachean ethics very well and the other ethical works of Aristotle, this will be just a really uh, brief um, kind of summary of Aristotle on practical reasoning in those works. So Aristotle's view of practical reasoning for human beings is they have to have a, a knowledge of the situation, of the particulars of the situation, and know what kind of situation it is, or um, in order to make the to make these correct decisions and come to do the right things. Um, but on top of that, they have to have a vision of what makes an entire life go well. So they are reassessing that the, the, 
the foremost individual is always reassessing what he or she does in light of what's just happened. They're thinking, is this really going well now? How is my life going? Am I le leading the best kind of life? So they have, they, they need this in order to, to coordinate their different virtues and their different concerns. And um, they have this also the sort of overall vision. It, Obviously can't do this all the time, but every once in a while you have to reflect. How are things going? Am I deliberating well with what promotes well-being in general? And this can actually apply not just to the individual, but to the society. So am I promoting the well-being of society and things I do? So there's a sort of self-reflective aspect that's not available in non-human animals. So how, do we, how does this relate to parenting and caring? So, first of all, we can note from that first quote from the generation of animals, we will have natural feelings of affection for our young, young of our kind. Um, but that's never going to be enough. There has to be this deliberate choice to care. So, you can't just stick with this unchosen natural desire to care for the young or to show affection to the young because that won't be full virtue and that won't be an integration. It won't be integrated with this human practical reasoning. Um, now, we just think about the intelligence. So think about this concept of phrenesis. We've already seen that animals have to use their intelligence to try and um, raise their young. But human beings have to do it as well. There, there is this sort of idea in some um, um, feminist literature um, Virginia Held talks about how uh, the, the caring duties of mothers were sort of downgraded as instinctual, and a maternal love is this sort of unthinking, instinctual thing. Um, but uh, this, is, this, this, this is not what Aristotle would think. We'd think that p parental virtue would be really, really difficult to try and figure out what the best way to raise a, a, a child was. I mean, already in the animal kingdom, but, but even more so for us. So nurturing a very young child their brains are amazingly malleable. Everything will affect them. Any way you speak to them, how you look at, how you interact with them, you have to look and talk to them a lot, and all of these kinds of things. Um, what do you feed them? When do you um, make them go to sleep? You know, these things are incredibly complicated. That's why we need, you know, should we let, should we let the baby on play with the taps? Um, and you, you get these really long books, like what to expect in the first year, and what to expect in the second year. I'm afraid after that you're on your own. I didn't see that there was one about the third year. But uh, in any case, there's a, there's a great deal to learn here. And in fact, that stage, although it's incredibly important for the development of human beings, and it is incredibly difficult to figure out the right things to do at the right times in the right ways, um, it may be even more difficult to figure out what to do with slightly older children when they are starting to make their own choices and decisions. And this is where, your, um, this is where an older person's knowledge will be most important. Their nurturing will be most important because here they are trying to teach the young person how to make her own decisions, how to grow into themselves as a moral being. So Rudick, um, take this example from Sarah Rudick, who actually, I think Aristotle ag agrees a lot with her book about how mothering is intelligent. Um, and she says, well, there's this child and is about to throw a full water balloon out of a high-rise building at some passers-by. So what do we do with this child? 
we don't scream and slap it or something like that, but we need to talk gently and explain why this is the wrong, while protecting them. We need to keep all of these human goods in mind while we are training them to, to think for themselves. That's really important. So we're training the young to be involved in their own thoughtful engagement with the learning, uh, learning of practical um, reason. So um, there is then this intelligent, very highly informed intelligent friendship between the older and the younger person. Um, and this Aristotle actually says that children and parents are friends. Um, his term philia, of course, is broader than our term friendship, but I use this translation because I find it, it works um, for what I want to talk about. So um, friends for Aristotle, he talks about them as external goods. Now. Um, the internal goods are those that you have direct control over because you can decide how to develop your own psyche to be a, um, um, a good person. But on the other hand, these friends as external goods are not just something you add on. Um, they are um, instruments towards the realization of your good nature. Um, and so, so friendship, although it's not a virtue, is very closely related to the uh, fulfillment of your own good nature, of your virtuous activity, uh, and part of your virtuous activity. So um, this is why when you have friends and they, and, and they don't do well after your death, this somehow is important. It's important that your interconnection with them means that something sort of bad or wrong has happened. And there's a bit, there's a bit of a mystery about this, which um, Dominic Scott writes so well about in his paper. I just touch on that because it, in what comes up, we're going to find out why. Why, some, why friendship means something is something happening outside of you, but affecting you internally as well. Okay, so I move on to part two. Um, friendship and love and caring for the young. So human friendship is a state um, rather than a feeling. So as I said, it's not just that feeling of affection um, that constitutes the friendship. It's, a, it's the choice that we make, the deliberate choice we make to um, endeavor to uh, be friends with somebody. Um, and this is particularly important in these friendships with those younger than ourselves. It's the choice to undertake the caring responsibilities. And this is beneficial to both the cared for and to the carer. Um, so I'll go more in, into that. There, there is a bit of a complication here, because when Aristotle introduces um, the idea of um, unequal friendships, which include parent and child, he says at this stage in uh, Nicomachean Ethics, um, he says, well, what really should happen is that the person who's inferior should love the in superior person more in order to even out the love. Okay, so that's our... Um, quote, on the handout, but not on the PowerPoint. So in all friendships implying inequality, the love also should be proportional. The better should be more loved than he loves, and so should be more useful. For when the love is proportional to the merits of the parties, then in a sense arises equality, which is held to be characteristic of friendship. Eh. But it turns out that this equaling out model, uh, which is uh, idea, which is modeled on justice, so you pay back more than you, than you give, um, isn't going to work for our nurturing friendships, isn't going to work for our parent-child relationship. So there's a bit of a puzzle here, because 
Um, as he goes on to say, friendship lies more in loving than in being loved, as is indicated by the delight mothers take in loving. For some mothers hand over their children to be brought up, and so long as they know their fate, they love them and do not seek to be loved in return. She would seem to be satisfied if she sees the child doing well. And she loves the child even if ignorance prevents them from according to her what befits a mother. Friendship, then, consists more in loving. So what do we do about this seeming contradiction that before we heard that this unequal relationship between the child and the parent had to be evened out by the child loving the parent more? And here we get a model of mothers, in a sort of example of mothers, but idea of friendship as consisting more in loving. And Aristotle himself sees this contradiction and, 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 um, and, and talks about it, which I'll, uh, I'm going to move on in part three to discuss. But before we get there, we can already see that there are some ways we can find differences um, between the unequal friendships that can be equalized by this justice model and the unequal friendships we have in nurturing relationships. The first one is that um, when he talks about the... The, the first, the, the idea of equalizing out, he may have in mind um, relationships that are perpetually unequal. So, for instance, ruler and ruled over. In that case, um, it's, it's never going to be the case that um, the ruler can make the ruled over come up to his level by giving more love. But this is not the case with parent and child. The goal of the parent-child relationship is to bring the child up to exactly the same virtue level as the parent. Um, and so the giving of love is therefore um, going to bring this about, is going to, bring, is going to do something good in the world and bring the younger person up to the level of the, of the older person. The second thing to note is that in these nurturing friendships, the, um, young, the, 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 the type of love that the two people feel differs. So the, the love of the, of the older person is a nurturing love that is focused on what's essential about the young person, their moral character, what wants to develop them to be um, a, a fully mature human being living this practically intelligent life. But the love that the younger person feels for the older person is some kind of accidental love. It's a sort of gratitude or respect. And so it's not the same sort of thing. Okay, so that's just preliminary. But I'm quite interested in this example um, partly because he uses a parent. And I want to, well, to use this um, example to reinforce my view that um, parenting has to do with making intelligent choices and, not, and, and it's not the sort of unthinking, nurturing instinct. So this is an example of a mother who makes an intelligent decision to send her child away. We don't know the circumstances. They're obviously very complicated. They're, maybe a sense in which the mother realizes that in order for the child to have the values that she thinks are most important, it can't remain where it is now under her own care. There are certain circumstances here that mean that it must be sent somewhere else where it will gain the kind of values that she thinks are most important. So the, it's, the nurturing virtue then obviously is directed towards the well-being of the child. And there's a sense here you get that the parent is there, there's something in it for the parent, which we'll get into more in a minute. What, what, what's, what's good for the parent about this? Because the parent is not, is not, being, is not getting any love in return, and uh, she doesn't have the respect that befits the mother. So there must be something about 
the way that decision is making her life go well. So she has made the right decision. So she is a, is active in her virtue, and her virtue is um, um, is being advanced by this decision. And there's a sense here then that we're going to now explore about how the child doing well is somehow part of the mother leading her own good life. And yet the child exists outside of her. So how can it be both of those things? How can it be enriching and um, making her life go well while also being a separate entity with a life of its own? So um, I will... Oh, sorry, I missed out. <laughs> I had that on the end. So we're going to move on now to explore more fully. So we have this, we had this dilemma about why in nurturing relationships, the, the person who's superior gives more love. Now, why would that be when, it, when the justice model seems as if they ought to be getting more love? They ought to be getting more, um, getting more for being superior. Well, there must be something in it. There's a value in this active nurturing um, for the nurturer. So Aristotle brings up the puzzle uh, get, uh, in the Eudaimian, Eudaimian ethics. He brings up this very puzzle. Just puzzling why those who produce benefit love those who have received it more than those who receive benefit from those who produce it, when the opposite seems to be just. Um, and he makes the first stab at trying to solve this dilemma by making more sense of what's in it for the nurturer, what's in it for the parent or the, or the person who loves more. Um, and so first kind of stabs at this are that it's somehow natural because love is, is, loving is active and being active is, is better, is more choice-worthy. You'd rather be active than passive. The person who's being loved is more in a passive position. So this activity of loving that's somehow um, um, important. And the second idea is that the, um, the inferior friend if you want to call it the inferior friend, the one that's getting more love, is somehow a product of the beneficiary, of the person who gives more love. So um, this is the first statement of that in the Eudemian ethics. And um, 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 I will actually read out more of the passage in the Eudaimony, um, sorry, the the Nicomachean Ethics, where it is um, spelled out a bit more clearly. Actually, I'll just read the, the first part of it. There is the same relation between the effect and the activity, the benefited being, as it were, an effect or production of the benefactor. Okay, so that you get this first idea about benefaction, which is loving, giving love, wanting um, to, to uh, benefit the younger person, and that being connected to, to something um, like production. So we first get that idea there. So, um, and then he develops this in the Nicomachean Ethics, tells us more about this, but uh, it is slightly confusing. So he, he says, benefactors love and feel friendship for those who receive their benef benefactions, even when the recipients are of no use now or never will be. So again, we get this idea that you don't have to, that the young person doesn't have to even show you any respect or know who you are, but you're still getting some benefit uh, you're still, um, you as the older nurturing person are still um, um, doing well by this activity. You are doing well. Something about your life is going really well, even though you don't get anything in return, seemingly. So the gain to the benefactor is elucidated within this broader metaphysical structure. And here's our, 
our, our key uh, quotation from Aristotle. Um, existence is choice-worthy and lovable for everything. We exist insofar as we are actualized by living and acting. The product is, in a way, the actualization of the producer. Hence, the producer is fond of the product because he is fond of his own being, and this is natural. For what he is potentially, the product indicates in its actualization. At the same time, the benefactor's action is fine for him, so that he is pleased by that person, the person outside of himself. So in interpreting this passage, I'm going to look at three things. So three puzzling things I see about this passage. How is the activity of loving a beneficiary, how is that like producing something? Then how is this product, how does that involve a love for one's own existence? And then finally, how the person who has been nurtured brings joy to the nurturer, even if the, that person doesn't even know that the nurturer exists. So let's go to this first idea of beneficiary and production. So processes um, like loving, building, teaching, nurturing, are active capacities for Aristotle. You need an active and a passive capacity, and when they come together, there's a realization or an actualization. Now, this can happen just internally. So if you are seeing something, then sight is just something that happens inside you. Or it can happen inside you and outside you. So when you are actualized as the producer of something, there's something that comes to be outside of you. Um, so uh, a com we have a, the builders here. They have um, completed a building which is external to the builder. But the activity and the capacity to build has been, that's internal to each builder has been actualized when they have completed their buildings. Um, so this helps explain about this posthumous fortune worry. That why is it that, that after you die, it matters whether your beneficiaries have done well or not in the next, uh, at some point after you died. So one thought is, well, because your actualization of benefaction hasn't been complete until they have completely benefited, until they've grown up. Um, and so that's, that's Dominic Scott's answer. But let, let's think more about this, how this involves a love for one's own existence, how the uh, child as a product or the younger friend as a product involves a care or love, a love for oneself. So um, it's natural, says Aristotle, that producers love their products because this is a love for their own existence. And he uses craft analogies. So we have our buildings here. So these, the three little pigs, love their three little houses. And uh, because, why would they love their three little In fact, Aristotle uses poems. I find this a bit confusing. He says that if poems, um, if, if poems were, the poets are particularly fond of their poems as if they were their children. But if the poems came to life, they wouldn't love them as much. So this is his kind of metaphor. But, um, um, so we value and continue to identify. Identify. This is important. We continue and so so um, um, so um, Wordsworth sort of loves the prelude. He identifies with the prelude. The prelude is his child, like his child. It's something that's uh, it, it was a reflective of himself, even though it exists outside of him. So this is a sort of idea here. 
Poets love their poems as if they were their children. So why would this be? Well, one, I've got a couple of ideas. So maybe it's because it's quite difficult to make these things. I mean, actually, it's sort of, it's, it's the third little pig that takes the most effort. So, we, you know, we can praise the third little pig's skill a little bit more. So it's a difficult thing to make, then, then, then you might take pride in it and feel good about it. Um, there is a sense of uniqueness, or at least a special relationship between the, the nurturer and the nurtured. And um, so it's not, that, um, it's not that Wordsworth takes pride in, um, um, in Ozymandias. He takes pride in the prelude. You know, it's, it's his own product. It's very uniquely kind of um, connected to his own views and values and personality. And this is the sense in which, um, so Aristotle's thinking of bespoke craft production. Now, we don't have a factory here. Every craftsperson has to make every, every particular single craft object uh, with her own special skills, reflective of her skills and intelligence. So, but craft analogies can only take us so far. And that's because, for several reasons. So, um, they, the first one, of course, is the poems can actually come to life, and the, but the, the, the products of nurturing benefaction are alive and live on. Um, so the, the a kind of parallel, it would be something like if a poem could come to life and start writing poetry. So this is the sort of thing that happens with human benefaction. You have a human being that you're benefiting, you have a, a, this kind of close, unique relationship, that person takes on some of your values, you share values, you make choices together, there's this interconnection of those two people. And that sort of, those actions, those choices, those thoughts live on. They are alive, they're in, in action in the younger person. And, and, and uh, being a poet or a builder is just one of the activities of being a human being. But central to being a human being is um, living a good life for a human which is what the nurturer is trying to bring about for the younger person. So they're really focusing on what's essential to the person there. Um, okay. So not all uh, human beings are poets, but all humans must be nurturers or else we don't get any family trees. Sorry, that was the only family tree I could find. But you have this chain of nurturing going on, I guess. I mean, we should probably stick in some nannies and so on. So. The real, so now we have to think about why, what it has to do about our own existence and um, the pleasure that's taken from the existence of, of another that a person has nurtured. Um, so as we saw from the model from, from metaphysics, uh, we already saw how the actualization of internal capacity could sort of be dependent on what happened outside, whether something was fulfilled outside of us. Um, but that doesn't tell us about, the, um, about how that is also a love for our own existence. So that only tells us that we kind of like the fact that some kind of actualization has happened inside of us, and that is part of who we are. So I'm, if I'm a poet, then it's part of who I am that I've produced this beautiful poem. But um, what I think is really crucial here is the way that human beings are what I call existentially intertwined. So in loving oneself, um, in, in valuing one's own existence, which is a kind of activity, so all 
living things are, exist in activity for Aristotle. And our greatest human activity is to think rationally and to... Um, so when we are deciding, to, when we are leading a good life and living an active, virtuous life, that's us living our own lives. But in doing that, when we have this younger friend who's maturing and taking on some of our values and, and, and intertwining, sorry, we are um, developing their values and uh, sharing, um, then we also sort of live on in that other person and love the other person in connection to ourselves. The other person, Aristotle says, is, um, so you, it's not just that you have this capacity to be productive, but something goes and lives on outside of you, a good human being, uh, something that's fine or good. And um, I push that a little bit further to, to um, assume that once the younger friend has reached a certain stage, the two people will have more of an equal friendship, or at least a closer to an equal friendship, which Aristotle talks about these friendships, these special friendships that focus on character as character or virtue friendships. And this is where he gives more a fuller account of the intertwining of two people's choices and lives. Um, so in uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, book nine, chapter four, he gives, um, in fact, there what he's doing actually is he's explaining how um, the feelings that you have for your friend are exactly the same kind of feelings you have for yourself. Um, and so that is part of his explanation of how close your friendship is is that it's like a kind of reflection of yourself in um, your relationship with your friend is so similar to your relationship to yourself that they're somehow um, overlapping. And the first mark of friendship that he points out is his benefaction. So you wish to promote by your action the good of another for their own sake. You don't want to get anything in return, just for their own sake. You wish that of yourself and you wish that of your friend. And the second mark of friendship is you want your friend to live and exist as a human being. So it's sort of epitome of a good human life. And there he uses the example of parents, in particular mothers. They have this wish for their children to live and exist. Um, so how are these, uh, how are we intertwined with our friends? Um, when we, so for Aristotle, Friends sort of live together, they make decisions together, they share projects, they'll be figuring things out, make, you know, two minds are better than one, trying to figure out difficult problems, you can't do this on your own. You just can't live on your own. You, there is no human being that lives on his or her own Aristotle. You certainly couldn't get to the point where you'd be able to think about anything unless you had a whole host of people um, who had nurtured you to that so, um, and this pattern of kind of how your friend, so if you're thinking about things together and you're sharing values and you're deciding to do things together, then Aristotle thinks that this shows that when you've decided to do something, in a way, the agency was also in your friend you discussed that with before because some of the deliberation was from them or at least shared with them. So what our friends achieve is in a way achieved through our own agency since the origin is in us. 
And that kind of pattern, I think, is even more evident in these nurturing friendships when they reach a certain point. And you can really see that this, the values and decisions of the one person reflected in the other. Um, so my example I used was from, uh, uh, what is this, uh, Sense and Sensibility. So we see um, that the, the younger sister is nurtured by the older sister, um, and she's very uh, flighty, but through these long discussions, she becomes more sensible. And so you find that you could, you could think of um, Eleanor as sort of um, living in Marianne's decisions now that she has realized and decided and thought for herself about how those were the right values for her to have. Um, so that's the sort of existential intertwining. Um, the virtuous, so there's some more very uh, explicit quotations about this, about the, what the friends achieve is achieved by us. Um, so this, it, that a friend's actions are in a way one's own. And, the, and finally, of course, the reason why he brings up these marks of friendship and shows that the two, um, the way you're related to yourself is very similar to the way you're related to your friends, is that the friend is like another self. Um, so virtuous person is related to her friend in the same way she's related to herself. Since her friend is another herself, therefore just her, as her own being is choice-worthy for her, her friend's being is choice-worthy for her in the same or similar way. So we now see more about why having those nurturing benefic uh, beneficiary friendship actually um, is a love for yourself because your decisions are reflected in the younger person and the younger person becomes a part intertwined with your life. Okay, so you have, if you do this successfully and, you, um, and, your, and your younger sister marries a baron or whatever he was, um, then you have succeeded in benefiting somebody and um, you have succeeded in producing a person who has actualized their good. And so just getting a little bit of recognition or admiration or respect is not um, is nothing compared to that. Um, I have this. Just put that in. Did anyone hear about this man who sued his parents for making him exist? So he said, "But it, you owe them nothing. You are their entertainment. It's forcing a child into the world and so on." Well, in my last section, I suppose what I would say not going to really engage with that exactly, but I would say what you have in Aristotle is a really much more um, optimistic view, an optimistic, perhaps realistic view, that human beings love and care about their own existence. Um, and it's not, you don't produce other human beings for your entertainment, or you don't ask for their consent. This is just something that human beings have to do. They have to produce other human beings and care for them and nurture them. Um, and um, so this care and nurture is not a burden. Um, it's you value your own existence. Um, existence is this activity, and um, nurturing is a key part of this well-lived life. Being active is good. Um, and in the case of nurturing, which you're going to include in your life, whether it be of your own children or um, others. I will say about this guy, he's suing his parents, and his parents are both lawyers, so you can see there's some values that have been instilled in him by his parents. So, um, yeah. Um, so, um, so you, in this case, you have a product that lives outside of you, 
but becomes the sort of intertwined part of your life. And that is the source of joy. And I think we can take this further and think about the human race as intertwined in generations. So um, from Aristotle's very clear that it takes a long time to nurture a human being. They're probably not fully mature until their 30s. Um, and so there are interactions between younger and older people that happen in communities that are going to be of this nurturing kind that run through all kinds of different um, systems that we have. I mean, at the moment, there is this contemporary project to combine nurseries with um, care homes. And this has been very, very, very successful. So that the, the younger children learn and um, are, are much more folk, uh, verbally, um, much more sophisticated, and the older people have more of a sense of connection and happiness in their lives. So we see this. So it, my proposal is that human lives are um, overlapping. So if we think of it in Aristotle's ways, this existential intertwining, then everyone that, you, that nurtured you up to a certain age is somehow contained or at least reflected in your choices and your values. And then this is then um, conveyed to the people that you nurture once you are mature. And so you have this kind of um, necessary overlapping. Oh dear, yeah, the father and son. Okay. And they're sort of, you know, as a child and now is reading to the children. So in conclusion, Finally, uh, the, so the, um, in terms of society, so I've really just been talking about interpersonal relationships. And I'm very much aware that there are all kinds of structures that need to be in place in our society to ensure the rights of children. Um, and I'm not denying all the importance of all of that. And Aristotle also wants human beings to set up structures, political structures, and to teach their young to be politicians. So I'm not denying the importance of this. However, Aristotle is quite clear, and I think I have some sympathy with this, that we can't have all of that without the interconnection between people at, at base. So not everything can work from the top down. We can have completely fair societies in which older people have no contact with children, and children have no contact with older people. Um, and all the rules are followed and everyone's rights are um, respected. But something is lost in that sort of situation. Um, that there is this actual benefit to everyone that can occur by, this, by acknowledging and nurturing and, and, um, and building on this uh, intergenerational nurture. And so Aristotle thinks it's, uh, that you can't have this sort of uh, societies without the friendship binding people together within them. Um, so uh, Plato had proposed that um, everyone have, uh, have a mating ceremony and then be separated from their children. Uh, and they send off to the, to the nursery and, and the, the guardians get on with, uh, with their business of being philosophers and warriors and so on. And then in 20 years time, they'll all call those people their children. And he said, this is just not going to work because you haven't got actual relationships between these people that are holding that city together. Um, so there's calls for optimism. Now, just one last little note, which is that um, there's another sort of way of looking at how um, nurturing those younger than ourselves is beneficial to the individual, which is that it, it can make us 
reflect on the sorts of things we get up to. Um, it's taken from The Guardian. So this is obviously not a terribly good thing to do. So um, you, might, you might be in the presence of a very irritating baby who wants your attention and keeps asking you questions and wanting you to look at things and um, sing to them and explain things to them. Um, and actually, it's, it makes you a better person. It enriches your life in some kind of fundamental way to engage with that, to be forced to engage with that, rather than to, say, pursue things that are supposed to be your interests, your sort of personal pleasures, your, you know, he's, he's Googling himself find out what people think of him. And, and this is then, so this sort of um, forcing one, so there's a, a sense in which there's all, there's all this nurturing that's, that's going, there's all this um, work that's going on from the, um, the, the person who loves more, but there's a benefit that comes from doing that, from, being, from that being, being forced to do that, but also just accepting that this is what you should choose to do in your life. Thank you.